0: Welcome to the fourth episode of The West Steps. Um, This week, we are going to sit down and talk education with Leslie, um, and I'm going to let her introduce herself. My name is Leslie Caldwell, and I am our vice president for education initiatives. Um, Les, can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in education policy?
1: Yeah. Um, So education is my family business. I am the product of two teachers who met while they were teaching at the same high school here in Colorado. Uh, and I had the benefit of an excellent public education in Littleton Public Schools. When I graduated college, I was a sixth grade teacher in Los Angeles. I taught sixth grade math and earth science. And it was an interesting time because it was during the recession. And so, um, you know, budget cuts happened and layoffs happened and, um and at my school, all of my sixth grade students the following year had substitutes in all of their core subjects. And so I think that was just one example of the way that I saw education inequity play out um, in my school in my district. And I I became really interested in in policy and, you know, what are the policy levers to change that? And so I came back to Colorado and I worked in the state capitol with a legislator who was really involved with Education policy conversations for a few years, uh, and I became familiar with the Children's Campaign because they were doing great work over there. Uh, and I made my way over here in 2014, so I've been here for five years now. Um,
0: that's great. So, with the failure of Amendment uh, 73 this past election cycle, the funding school the the funding for schools remains the top priority for Colorado. What does the Colorado investment in education looks like right now? So I think that if we're talking
1: about Colorado's investment in education, there are two sides to that question. So when we talk about investment, I think we have to look both at the revenue side. So the funds that are feeding the system and how they're collected, but also the formula side. So how we then are allocating and spending those funds on students and schools Um, And I would argue that both sides of that equation are broken fundamentally, and they really present a barrier to improving student outcomes in our state. Um, I think a lot of the problems with school finance in Colorado can be traced directly to how some of our um, pieces of our Constitution have interacted with each other over the last 30 years or so um, and have really resulted in, in negative unintended consequences. Uh, The three constitutional pieces in particular that I'm talking about would be the Gallagher Amendment, the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, or TABOR, as it's usually called, and Amendment 23. Um, And so those were passed in 1982, 1992, and 2000, respectively. Um, I think when you look at those three pieces of the Constitution together— They've really put our state budget on autopilot uh, for the last 30 years. And what I mean by that is uh, that our decisions about how we invest in education have not been um, as informed by our values as I think they should have been. But they really have been determined by formulas that
0: we have very little control over. So we the way we collect money and the way we distribute money to schools is unsustainable and it has not helped schools, teachers, teachers. school district. Can you give us some examples of how that shows up? Yep. So I can give several examples,
1: uh, but maybe today we can start with our property tax system that funds schools. Um, So this is the foundation of revenue that's available to make sure that every kid is getting what they need to be successful in school. Um, And unfortunately, we have this weird system here where we require certain taxpayers in our state to pay disproportionately high tax rates compared to their neighbors, literally people who might be in the next school district over. Um, And what I'm talking about here is this very wonky term called total program mill levies. Um, These are paid by voters in each school district when they own property Um, and, and voters and school districts have no control over what their total program mill levy is. Um, I I guess it probably helps, Bayes, if I explain what a total program mill levy is. That would be great. It's essentially a property tax rate. Um, So you take the assessed value of property and you multiply that by the mill levy, and that gives you the amount of property tax that you actually have to pay to the state. Um, And that's the, the first source of revenue for school finance. Total program mill levy, I always point this out, is different than mill levy override. Because I think people are familiar, they hear Malevi override or they hear total program Malevi, and those things sound very similar, but they're very different. So when school districts want to spend more money per student than what they're required to spend based on the state funding formula, They have the ability to go to their local voters and ask for more funds. It could be for teacher salaries. It
0: could be for updating curriculum. So this is what Denver, for example, passed this past uh, election cycle on on, like Mm -hmm. arts and education and things like that.
1: Yeah. So Denver has passed several mill levy overrides. Um, Districts can also go for bonds. And that's something that allows them to have more funding available for building of schools, for example. So um, with mill levy overrides, these are property tax increases. They bring in additional tax revenue, and it stays in the school district, but it doesn't impact the amount of funding that they receive from the state. So that is a mill levy override. What um, what I wanted to kind of talk about today is total program mill levies. And so um, we're going to do a little exercise, okay? So imagine that we have identical taxpayers in four school districts. Okay, so we're going to talk about Pueblo, Denver, Aspen, and a really tiny school district called Primero in Southern Colorado. So we have identical folks. They are earning the same amount of money. So that means they're paying the same amount of state income tax. Um, And let's say that they also all own a um, median value home, which in Colorado is about $348,000. Okay, So the taxpayer that lives in Pueblo is paying 27 total program mills on that home. And so each year they are contributing to the education system about $678. Um, There are taxpayers in 38 other school districts besides Pueblo that are paying that that rate of 27 mills, and it's actually the highest allowable tax rate in the state. So um, if we go then over to Denver Public Schools... The mill, the, the total program mill in Denver is 25.5. So it's a little bit below that ceiling of 27. Um, and uh, I also said Aspen. So I'm not sure that a $348,000 home exists in Aspen. <laughs> but if it did, uh, that homeowner would only be paying 4.4 mills. Towards education in the state—that's crazy. So yeah, so that's crazy. But then, if we look at Primero, which again is the small district in southern Colorado, um, they only levy one point six eight total program mills. Okay, so the range that I just laid out is one point six eight mills to twenty seven mills. If you're that taxpayer in Primero, your contribution to K twelve education in the state every year is about forty two dollars. So that is sixteen times less than the taxpayer in Pueblo. And not just Pueblo, but also Greeley, Holyoke, Alamosa. So I mentioned there are 39 school districts that are paying that high rate of 27 mils. Um, But then we have this crazy range where our 178 school districts are between 1.68 and 27 mils. Um, So these are identical situations, but our property tax system is treating these taxpayers very differently. Um, based really just on where they live. Um, and so in every instance, it's important also to recognize that the state looks at what is a, what is brought in through that mill, the, the local property tax revenue. And then the state is required to backfill the amount um, to get each district to what's called total program funding. And that is the amount of funding that the state funding formula says they should receive. Um I think a helpful analogy here, Beza is looking at income tax, and so if we said in in Colorado we had folks in Primero who were paying one point six eight percent on their income and folks in Alamosa or Greeley or Pueblo paying twenty seven percent, I think people would balk at that system. I think you know it wouldn't it doesn't seem very fair on its face or sustainable right right, yeah, and so um That is not how it works with income tax. We have a flat income tax rate of 4.63% in the state, but that is how our property tax system works. It's Mm -hmm. really, really unequal. Um, and it results in, in funding looking very differently across school districts in Colorado. Um, on top of this sort of base layer of inequality, we layer on top of that then mill overrides, which, you know, I think we should celebrate when local communities want to support their education system locally. Um, But what we know is that that then generates other inequities in that um, in Pueblo, for example, there are $0 available for mill overrides. So in addition to what they receive from the state, um, they don't have any other supplemental funding. But if we go over back to Aspen, they have about $3,360 per student in additional funding. Um, and so those are the sorts of uh, inequalities
0: that we see in our property tax system that funds education. Okay, so I'm going to ask the most logical question, and maybe this is obvious to people. Why have we set up a system That is so inequitable. It is. It's completely crazy.
1: And there's really no good rhyme or reason or policy rationale for why the system should look like this. Uh, It has really been, as I mentioned a little bit ago, it's really been dictated by formulas that voters and districts have not been able to control. So the very basic answer to your question there is that um, in 1988, our Colorado school finance system looked a lot like it does now, where we had mill levies all over the place. Um, And so the legislature enacted a uniform mill levy and they phased it in. So they said by 1991, we want all districts to transition to about 40 mills or fully funded locally. And what I mean by that is, you know, we have some school districts where the property tax base is so high that um, one mill generates a lot of revenue. Um, and so in some school districts, you would be fully funded with local tax revenue way below that 40 mil level. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. So um, in 1992, Tabor came along, Taxpayers Bill of Rights. And one of the things that Tabor did that was important is it constrained the growth in local revenues so they could only grow by inflation plus enrollment each yeah. year. Um, And so if your assessed value, if you were in a school district where your assessed value was growing enough because you, um, you know, if you were a growing resort community or you were experiencing an oil and gas boom, for example, um, your mill levy had to ratchet down so that your revenue stayed within that TABOR cap. Oh, so we put a cap on how much we were collecting. Yep, exactly. And so if one piece of the equation was going up, which was assessed value, Mill levy then had to ratchet down. And that is how we had some of our mill levies pushed as low as as they now are. Um, Because of this, over the course of basically 15 years, it was 1992 to 2007. If you were in a school district where your assessed value was growing, you saw reductions in your mill levies. And the legislature in 2007 said this is unsustainable. Um, You know, we can't have mill levies keep... Uh, ratcheting down like this and so they froze them into place in 2007 and that uh, was a good thing Um, but it also froze the inequities that had been introduced into the system in place and that was the
0: sort of negative side of of doing that what is the outcome of this inequitable system of how we collect revenue on students and teachers and the quality of the schools can you walk us through that Yeah, I think that's a really important question because, you know, when you
1: when I'm talking to folks about this and I'm using words like total program mill levy and assessed value and ratchet down, (laughs) it is it feels meaningless. Um, But what that results in is a system that looks very different in terms of the amount of resources available for kids education across the state. So um, I would reference our listeners to or direct our listeners, I should say, to a Denver Post article that was published earlier in January. Um, It was a front page Sunday Denver Post article, um, and it really clearly laid out some examples of how this plays out in school districts in Colorado. Um, The article compared what's happening in specifically in Primero, which is one of the the lowest mill levy district that I mentioned And Sierra Grande, which is a school district very close by. Um, I mentioned that Primero is at 1.68 mils. Uh, That is largely because they experienced an oil and gas boom in the 90s. And so their assessed value went way up, and that required the mill levy to go down. Sierra Grande is right next door, and they levy 27 mils. So, um, as just, you know, these are a couple of examples that the article laid out. So, Sierra Grande has. Uh, they have to borrow $700,000 each year to meet their operating costs, which they then pay back at the end of the year when property tax revenue comes in. Um, their textbooks are a decade old, and their teacher salaries are, are pretty low um, compared to the state average. Last year, their sewage system backed up and flooded the whole school. We then go over to Primero. Um, this is a district that owns their own wastewater treatment plant. The science curriculum exceeds state standards. Every student beyond third grade has their own computer to take home. Um, And they spend almost a third more on students than Sierra Grande does. Just right next door. Right next door. And so that is despite their low level of local investment. I want to emphasize this is by no, this is not Primero's fault. You know, this, I think it's worth saying over and over again, voters and districts didn't choose this system. They have no control over it. But Primero does benefit because they have this very low property tax rate, which makes it then easier for them to go to their voters to ask for mill levy override dollars, for example. So the article, I think, does a great way of laying out those examples, but there are examples like that all over the state. Um, If you're looking at what are communities able to do when they have artificially low mill levies versus
0: when they're taxed at the highest allowable rate. By the state, so we are um, investing per pupil almost an equitable level in every school district. We pay, we're not paying teachers uh, somewhat livable wages throughout the um, school district. And we have seen this uh, nationwide. Teachers so are we starting to see teachers striking, and it came very close here in Denver. So, what is the long term solution for um, this problem? I don't know if I have the answer to that, but I have some ideas.
1: I think here in Colorado, it's encouraging that there is some gathering momentum to address both the adequacy and the equity of our school finance system. So how we collect and how we distribute. Okay. Um, and I, as I mentioned at the beginning, I think that requires looking at just like you just said, how we collect the revenue and how we actually spend the money. So, um, you know, I think we start with this very unfair and nonsensical property tax system that I just explained. We layer on top of that mill levy overrides. And then on top of that, we allocate funding through this formula that is going to be 25 years old this year. Um, That is definitely not reflective of everything that we know about the link between targeted investments in kids and improved student outcomes, So um, on top of this, like, we need to fix the foundation of our revenue system for education. I think a a second and just as important solution is that we have to be looking at the ways that we're spending those dollars. And are we really making sure that the schools and districts most in need of additional resources are receiving them? Um, Both. I would say both sides of the system have to be addressed in the coming years. And we really think it's the most important challenge facing public education in the state, the sustainability of the system, the equity and the adequacy of the system. Um, And so, you know, I'd say until we have a solution to this funding challenge and others, our teacher salaries are going to continue to lag behind um, other professions and other states And that will cause problems for our educator workforce and our students. And so we got to do
0: something about it. So we just talked about a really complicated issue and a really big issue. How can people get involved? There are several things I think folks
1: can do. So um, we hope that as early as this week, the Joint Budget Committee is going to be debating a proposal um, that would equalize our property tax system and really fix the problem that I just laid out in terms of various levels of investment in in the education system. Um, we will be definitely following that and writing about it in Kids Flash, So stay tuned. Um, I think that on that note, the most important thing that people can do is go out and find, figure out what your local total program mill levy is and how does that compare to some of the districts that are immediately surrounding you and then start a conversation about it. Is this the kind of unequal system that we want in Colorado um, I would also say call your legislators and demand a more fair system of taxation that's going to help ensure that every district has an adequate amount of resources to serve kids. That would be those would be my recommendations on the revenue side of the equation on the formula side. I think this session we there are several opportunities to um, to improve our system. So one would be funding full day kindergarten. I know that listeners have already heard about this from Bill, um, and that is a crucial investment that we can make in the early learning of kids. So um, hopefully that will go through this year. And we also have a school finance legislator committee that may be extended for an additional year. Their charge would be to come up with recommendations for a new school funding formula in Colorado. And so I think that is also an incredible opportunity to really rethink what are the investments that we are making in kids now and what are the investments that we want to be making in kids based on everything we know. You know, what does research tell us um, really can improve student outcomes in Colorado? So I think that I would just end Bayes by saying uh, we are always here to serve as a resource on um, some of these wonkier ideas around property tax, but on other things as well.
0: So. Uh, reach out to us anytime if you have questions. Thank you so much. Thank you for making the time and explaining this very complicated policy issue for us. Um, And if you haven't already subscribed, subscribe to this podcast, share it with your friends and we will back at you next week with a new episode. Thank you, Les.